Hello and welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast, a show that keeps you up to date on the markets and helps you make smart choices with your investments. These are entirely our own views and that of our guests. It's not investment advice, but we know plenty of experts at ASB that'll be happy to chat if you need. The BlackRock Investment Institute has just released its 2022 Global Outlook. And joining me is BlackRock's Asia-Pacific Chief Investment Strategist, Ben Powell. We've had Ben on an earlier podcast this year, so I'm really looking forward to catching up again. And Ben, thanks for joining me today from Singapore. Oh, it's a pleasure, Chris. Great to be with you. Great to be with all the listeners and uh, looking forward to getting into some of the uh, important questions for the year ahead. Yeah, and before we start that, um, it's a pretty rainy day in Auckland, very muggy, even though we're supposedly in summer now, that's pretty standard Auckland weather. Um, how's it going up in Singapore at the moment? Pretty well, yeah. I, I always joke the most uh, kind of boring job in the world would be a Singapore uh, weather forecaster, with all respect to uh, everyone who does that, because uh, as every day, uh, 365, we are 32 degrees centigrade, chance of a storm around 2.30 p.m. So that's the uh, that's the daily reality of living six kilometres north of the equator is it's uh, sort of the same day every day weather-wise. More broadly, uh, I think uh, things are slowly getting better, restrictions coming off a little bit incrementally, uh, even some travel. So, uh, you know, touching wood and so forth, uh, we're going to talk about Omicron, I'm sure, a bit later, but it feels like, I don't know, Chris, if we can call it normal, but it feels like at least uh, moving slowly in the right direction, I, uh, I guess. Yeah, I had a quick look on the uh, straight times to uh, see if I could find any lo local uh, snippets. And generally, it seemed like the economy there was further down the track of, uh, of opening up than we are and a lot of restrictions uh, coming off. So hopefully we'll be, uh, we'll be following uh, that sort of lead over the coming months after. Uh, well, we've been in lockdown for three months uh, since our last podcast. So, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to return to normality as, as well. And... Um, just thinking back to last time we chatted, we'd, um, we were just talking about the Reserve Bank had lifted the official cash rate and the subsequent period they've lifted it again. Um, and we're now faced with this new variant of, um, of COVID, but it doesn't seem like it's going to stand in the way of um, progress, be it the Reserve Bank raising interest rates, the economy opening up a bit more over 2022. So those are the domestic things that we've been pondering and I'm sure our in investors are uh, going to enjoy hearing about what the uh, BlackRock Investment Institute are thinking about the global uh, backdrop for 2022. So shall we start with that report which um, we're going to be hosting on the website and it's called Thriving in a New Market Regime. So um, how about starting then with some flavour that, behind that title? And what's the new market regime you're uh, referring to? Right, yeah, no, I think that is the right, uh, the right starting point, uh, Chris. So the, the new market regime uh, is this uh, uh, situation that we've had in, in 2021, uh, where equities uh, kind of went up, global equities, uh, of course, some more than others, but in the round, global equities did uh, uh, kind of okay in uh, 2021. Uh, and bonds uh, a bit less so. So global bonds, uh, again, I'm very aware there are many different kind of geographies and so forth. But in the round, as a very broad statement, in 2021, global equities uh, kind of went up and global bonds kind of went down uh, as a very broad backdrop. Uh, and we think that might happen again. So that's the critical point that we think 2022 could be a repeat of 2021, where we see, uh, as I say, we have seen this combination of uh, the so-called risky asset ha has kind of gone up, equities have gone up, 
uh, and the so-called safe assets uh, has not done so well and gone down. So if we get that, and of course we'll uh, we'll circle back in 12 months, I'm sure, and see if this was right. But if we get that, if we get two years of equities up uh, and fixed income bonds uh, kind of down, that would be the first time we've had two consecutive years of equities up, bonds down for at least 50 years. That's as far as our records go back. So at least 50 years. So that's the new market regime uh, that we think we're all living in as, as investors. Uh, and I guess the whole report is about how we can thrive uh, as investors, uh, given what to us at least seems like a genuinely new uh, new context uh, and some new risks uh, involved, I suppose. Yeah, having uh, trailed uh, on um, coming out of lockdowns compared to the rest of the world, New Zealand certainly feels like it's led the charge in those uh, interest rate increases, with not only the Reserve Bank being one of the first central banks to hike but GL long-term yields, like a 10-year government bond here, or a five-year mortgage for that matter, they've lifted about 2% off the lows, which is an incredible movement when you're revaluing a bond and quite a headwind for things like the housing market if we're, if we're thinking about the increases in mortgage rates. So let's, let's drill into a couple of those themes and, and maybe a starting point is inflation. When we've... Um, discussed uh, on a podcast or, or on the phone uh, recently, we've had this um, question about is inflation transitory or, or something more permanent. So what's your latest thinking about the state of inflation and, and how long it's going to be hanging around for 2022 at these high levels? I mean, US inflation's at the highest level since 1982 now, which is remarkable. That's right. Yeah, 40 years or thereabouts, uh, 39 years for those who are uh, pedantic. So, uh, yeah, inflation is really, really high. Uh, and I think uh, it's going to come down a bit uh, over the next 12 months. But it's not going to go back to the very, very low levels that I guess we've uh, mostly got used to over the last uh, decade or so. So sorry for this, but it's a bit confusing, Chris. It's a, it's a bit of a game of two halves to uh, use a sports cliche. So the first thing, though, is that uh, there is clearly or for us, clearly uh, a degree of short term, uh, some of the intensity uh, you know, as, as we're saying, a 40-year high inflation is for us clearly driven, at least in part, uh, by the pandemic. So that's the uh, supply side uh, bottlenecks, port congestion, uh, all of that stuff uh, should uh, fairly dramatically improve over the next uh, 12 months. And that's clearly been a, a significant contributor to the very high uh, levels of inflation that we've seen. So uh, over the next six to 12 months, uh, uh, inflation should uh, normalize, should come down to kind of much more uh, uh, common or garden levels. But uh, in the background, uh, over the last uh, many years, we've had this, uh, as we term it at the BlackRock Investment Institute, policy revolution, where in particular, Western uh, governments and central banks have worked much closer together uh, with a much broader focus on uh, uh, kind of social harmony, growth, employment. Uh, in the US, uh, there's a ongoing, very significant uh, focus on uh, diverse employment uh, and so on. I'm not here to argue if that's right or wrong. I'm just here to observe that that's very different from kind of the historic, uh, or at least over the last 30 or 40 years, focus on kind of just inflation 2%. So that policy re revolution, this broadening of kind of what policymakers think they're for into more social aims, including uh, diverse uh, uh, employment uh, prospects and so forth, uh, we think uh, has been, as I say, a policy revolution. Uh, and what does that mean for inflation? It means the medium term inflation outlook is probably a bit higher. 
So again, sorry, Chris, I, I've probably spoken for too long there, but I think it is, it's kind of very important and there is a degree of nuance here. So to, to summarise, uh, over the next six to 12 months, inflation should come down uh, actually quite a lot as some of the shorter term uh, poor congestion stuff, all of that stuff should uh, hopefully normalise. So that's the kind of, uh, if you will, the short term uh, outlook for inflation. But uh, in the background, as I say, with this policy revolution, the medium term uh, outlook is a little bit higher maybe than we've got used to over the last uh, 10 years or so. Yeah, it, it, it's it's fairly um, subtle stuff in terms of changes. And one of the things which staggered me when that um, very high US inflation print came out was on that day, you would think if we were putting on our shadow central banker hats from um, earlier decades in our career, we'd go, right, record high inflation, the um, bond market's going to sell off and shares will probably suffer on such a high print. Um, yet here we were, the bond market um, took it in its stride and the uh, S&P 500 hit an all-time high. All while this um, pretty amazingly high inflation came out. So behind that move is a thinking that the Fed's not going to be panicking about this, uh, I guess, is the theme. So what's your outlook for the uh, central banks and, and particularly the Fed for um, 2022? Just how tolerant do you think they can be? I think just, if I may, just unpacking a bit of your question there, because that was like really important. I would have agreed with you, Chris, if you'd have told me inflation is going to be at a 40-year high uh, and so on, I'd have thought equities might have uh, struggled a bit, uh, fixed income could have struggled a bit and so forth. Uh, and indeed, something like the opposite. So again, just for all the kind of the listeners, I think this speaks to the importance of how we should all be quite humble. Like even if we knew what was going to happen, uh, just speaking for myself here, I would probably have got the investment uh, uh, call not entirely correct. So I think that speaks to the importance, one, of humility and two, of staying fully invested or staying invested, uh, I should say, uh, even in the face of, uh, it feels to us, a particularly uncertain world around uh, virus, vaccines, variants, uh, policy, all of this uh, uh, confusing uh, stuff. Um, but to come to your actual question on what do we think the Fed's going to do, we think that they are still uh, very focused, as I mentioned, on the growth side, the employment side of their mandate. So the Fed is charged with kind of a few things. One, general financial stability, two, inflation, and three, uh, growth. And it feels like just in, in, in keeping with the times, the emphasis from the Fed and other central banks can kind of subtly shift over time. Uh, and over the last couple of years, led by uh, no relation, my namesake, uh, Jay Powell, um, it feels like the Fed has been very, very, very focused uh, on growth and employment, uh, these broader social aims. Uh, and of course, that's only been exacerbated by the damage caused by uh, the pandemic and the related uh, necessary economic uh, restrictions. So I think the Fed is going to still uh, be extremely uh, keen to try to repair some of the damage caused by uh, all of that stuff, try to encourage more and more workers back into the workforce, some of these so-called discouraged uh, workers. And I think that is still where the emphasis is going to be, uh, because, uh, of course, the Fed is mindful of inflation, of course. But frankly, you know, if the interest rate goes up or down 25 basis points, does not affect port congestion uh, in Los Angeles, right? These are not related issues. So I think the Fed, to some degree, has to be humble about its own ability to affect uh, those sort of drivers of inflation, uh, i.e. they can't do much, as I say, about, uh, for example, port congestion. 
Uh, but what they can do is continue to provide a tailwind for the employment and maybe even the broader social kind of uh, healing that's necessary, uh, one could argue, in the US. So we think the Fed is going to do uh, very little, maybe one hike next year, uh, and after that do uh, a very, very gentle, slow pace uh, over the years thereafter. So uh, tapering we can get, uh, but tightening we think is still uh, kind of uh, a long way down the road in terms of, if you will, Chris, like an old-fashioned proper hiking cycle. We just don't see that given, uh, as I say, the emphasis that we think the Fed has on growth, uh, employment, uh, and those broader issues that I've uh, that I've mentioned. Yeah, I still find myself scratching my head when I um, think about the interest rate outlook um, that comes out of the back of, say, a Reserve Bank meeting or our forecast when we base it on the um, economic activity. And this idea that central banks are, are going to um, be very tolerant. Um, and we are seeing um, decent wage growth, which is desirable. But the tough thing, I think, for uh, salary earners and, and for investors too, is once we factor in this higher level of inflation, it's very hard for people looking for income growth. Um, and negative uh, real rates on bonds in many parts of the world, for example. So you're... 2022 outlook does it contain some insights you can share for um investors looking for income what are your thoughts there yeah it, it does and, and again we think this is uh, at least a part of the new market regime that we're talking about this uh very substantial challenge uh that income's kind of really hard to find so that at the same time is is really obvious because uh, we're all struggling with it but nonetheless it seems to us to be the profound challenge of our time uh, as investors uh, and therefore worth uh, spending some time on. Uh, the conclusion, I'm afraid, is uh, we're all going to have to try a bit harder. Uh, and trying a bit harder to find income, I think, is going to require uh, a bit uh, of more creativity, let's say, in terms of sourcing income through, uh, for example, equities. Some of these uh, high-quality, uh, high-income-generating uh, stocks, I, I think, can continue to be an important part of portfolios. Uh, it can be a uh, more creativity, if you will, in terms of the actual asset class that we're thinking about. So maybe out of a little bit out of uh, traditional fixed income and into uh, uh, more illiquid assets like property, a real, uh, um, again, a real asset which should, to some degree, uh, keep up with inflation uh, and so forth. Uh, and lastly, to be creative in terms maybe of, of geography. So, you know, rather than just defaulting to a U.S. Treasury holding as kind of the whole fixed income uh, bit of the basket, Maybe we need to be more uh, uh, creative and think about uh, uh, whether it's Asia or even, you know, China. China government bonds yielding 3% uh, is kind of a really high number. I mean, that's a very, you know, historically uh, strange comment that 3% can be a high number. Uh, but when we compare that with many uh, uh, yields all over the world that start with a minus sign, uh, it really is. So I think, uh, yes, firstly, we need to identify the problem, right, and just recognize this is a real uh, situation, a real problem, uh, and just kind of to accept that, uh, I think is step one. Step two, what do we do about it? Uh, and as I say, I think unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to do something a bit new uh, and evolve the historic so called safe asset holding, that bit of the portfolio, I guess the US Treasury, which has been uh, kind of so awesome over the last uh, uh, several decades, giving you, you know, some income, three, four, five percent, whatever, but a reasonable number, and also providing ballast on the days when the equity market went went down. That's still going to apply, but I think, given the starting point, it's going to be less the case than it has been for the last uh, few decades. 
and uh, we're going to have to think about how we can create some kind of an alternative. And for us, I'm afraid there is going to be a little bit of complexity. It is going to be a blend of these uh, different assets, as I've mentioned, where we're reaching a little bit for yield. Uh, that feels uncomfortable, but I think that is the, uh, that's the math. I'm afraid that's where the math takes us uh, and trying to source yield, uh, whether it can be in uh, equities, uh, alternative assets, including property. Uh, and then, as I say, literally looking a little bit further afield uh, in terms of geography, uh, and maybe China can be a be a part of that. Yeah, I never thought I would uh, join you and say yeah, three percent yield uh, sounds great and quite high. When I think about the um, what the entire period since World War Two, the U.S. Uh, Treasury, I don't think ever got below three percent until the global financial crisis, and um, here we uh, we got down to I think 0.5 percent for our 10-year government bond. Now it's around 2.5%, so it seems quite high, but it's still ridiculously low compared to the last uh, 50 years or so. And, and and this is one of the nice things about uh, listeners being able to dive into the report um, on the website for some of those some of those details. But let's get on to some of the global politics that um, we'll um, probably be thinking about in uh, the year the year ahead. Um, how does BlackRock see the very uh, important US and China relationship evolving over the year ahead, and 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 what sort of things does that mean for investors? Yeah, look, it's something we spend an awful lot of time uh, thinking about and talking about. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a a, a new I mean, geopolitics is not new, but the importance of geopolitics for investing seems to have only become more important over the last, uh, I don't know, four or five years uh, since maybe Brexit, Trump, all of that stuff clearly impacted on portfolios. And uh, uh, we don't think that's going uh, away. So US-China, look, it's, it's going to persist. We think that these tensions are structural uh, in nature. So that's that's kind of important because what that means is, it, it, obviously, it does matter, but to some degree, it doesn't matter exactly who's in charge. You know, the president uh, on the US side, at least, uh, can change. But if indeed these tensions are structural, uh, then they are going to persist, even if we were to have a change in the White House uh, in a couple of years or not, uh, because it's more uh, significant than any one person, even a very powerful person. Uh, it's uh, to do really with the nature of the countries, where they find themselves in their uh, uh, different evolutions and so forth. They're kind of naturally bumping into each other uh, and that's not going to change. So structural uh, tensions are going to persist. But in 2022, I think there is something of a uh, a better kind of backdrop for investors uh, in that both sides, both China and the US, have got a very busy domestic calendar. So naturally, it seems to us they will be more focused on uh, business at home, as it were. Uh, on the US side, you've got midterm elections, uh, you've got, um, uh, well, clearly a substantial focus on on that, on inflation, on many things that I won't get into. But uh, there's a lot going on on the U.S. side, I guess, critically the election. Uh, on the China side, China uh, continuing with its kind of reform and opening up agenda, a uh, huge political uh, uh, year as well, likely to lead to a, a big political event at the end of 22. Uh, when President Xi will be reappointed for, uh, uh, at least in recent history, unprecedented uh, third term and maybe beyond. So as I say, both the US and China, we think, are more interested in themselves this year um, than uh, would have been the case over the last uh, several years. Uh, and that kind of uh, internal inward gaze uh, should mean that they both want to dial down the confrontation, because frankly, they're just a bit too busy at home. So we've seen, I think, we've seen somewhat encouraging uh, steps in that direction. 
uh, Presidents Biden and Xi Jinping had a, uh, I wouldn't call it a warm conversation, but at least a conversation uh, a few weeks back. So for us, uh, again, uh, the structural tensions are going to persist. And that's something as investors, we're all going to need to be kind of aware of, I think, for many years, uh, sadly, maybe even decades to come. But in the short term, 22 uh, actually could be uh, a little bit better as both the US and China. Uh, they've just got so much to do domestically that that should hold their attention, uh, which uh, just reduces the amount of time that can be allocated, I think, to uh, to foreign uh, kind of foreign uh, uh, issues. And in particular, it seems there would be very little appetite to kind of inflame things, given, as I say, the domestic focus from both the US uh, and China through uh, through 22. And hopefully that's a, uh, a, a backdrop where um, where many uh, people and many businesses can, uh, to a certain extent, just uh, get on get on with it would be a, a pleasing backdrop compared to some of the stuff we've uh, put up with over the last uh, over the last few years. But um, moving on to another area that's been uh, interesting over uh, the past year, in uh, 21, we saw more countries commit to net zero carbon targets. How are the team at BlackRock thinking this will proceed and, and in turn impact uh, investments? Uh, we think it's going to proceed and we think it's going to impact investments. So we think uh, it's not going away. Indeed, uh, it seems... Uh, as you're saying, Chris, 21 uh, saw, I guess, even more commitment from even more uh, countries, uh, companies, societies, uh, more broadly towards uh, a net zero target uh, at some stage in the future. So I think, if you will, this theme, uh, I think, is going to become uh, business as usual, right? This is just going to become a part of the investment landscape, uh, sustainable risk, uh, sustainability risks as part of uh, how we think investing risks, investment risks uh, play out. So uh, I don't think it's going away. Indeed, the opposite, it seems like it's uh, becoming more and more uh, mainstream as, as another lens through which we uh, assess investment risk. But I think 21 has also shown us uh, that the path to net zero is not going to be uh, easy. We've never done this before. Uh, we uh, Humanity have never come off a carbon economy before. Uh, there is no roadmap. And it's really hard, right? So I think that's worth stating, even though I hope it's uh, to some degree obvious. So what does that mean? It means that there is a risk of a, of a bumpy transition. And we've seen a little bit of this over the last several months where maybe uh, there's been a bit of a mismatch in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, dialing some of the carbon generated energy down, while at the same time, maybe not having made significant enough investment into the new sources of energy. And so you've seen in Europe and other places a fairly uh, significant spike in energy prices uh, which is at risk of becoming a political issue uh, and so forth. So uh, the path to net zero, we think, is uh, is real and it's going to continue, but it's going to be complicated. So for us as investors, as is often the case, those complexities can be where the opportunities uh, are found. Because if we can invest in companies that help provide some of the solutions for some of these very difficult challenges, uh, then those should be companies that, and indeed investments that perform uh, pretty well over the uh, the years ahead. So the theme's not going anywhere. But now we think to some degree the conversation should move from is the path going to happen? We, we, we think that looks like uh, yes, much more towards the exactly how is it going to happen? Uh, and what does that mean kind of uh, almost uh, investment by investment for the portfolio? Because nuance uh, uh, is going to be, I think, the, uh, the, the critical kind of uh, uh, word uh, when we think about this for the uh, uh, the years ahead. 
Yeah, there's a, there's there's just seems to be more and more moving parts when we when we have these conversations about what the um, what what's going to happen in, in markets and and what it all means for investors. So uh, I think um, for uh, for people that fancy a bit of a read, um, then uh, then looking at at the full insight document will be something nice to do. And hey, on that front, let's um, let's finish on a on a couple of questions. First, a personal one, and and then one of those horrible ones that I'll come back to haunt you with at the end of next year. Um, so the personal ones are you are you having much of a break over the Christmas New Year period? Um, and what are you looking forward to uh, in 2022? Uh, I don't know if it's a break. I've got four kids aged uh, six and younger, so it's uh, it's uh, it's I, I, it's something. I don't know if it's uh, exactly a break, but we've got. Um, I'm pleased to say we travel pretty heavy, obviously, because there's uh, a lot of us. So we're gonna we're gonna import Christmas. My parents are gonna come uh, to us for Christmas. They haven't seen their grandkids in uh, two years plus, which uh, you know is a story. I'm sure many of us uh, have got a version of that. It's been. Uh, uh, it's been a hell of a two years, of course. So we're kind of very, very excited about that. My parents are, uh, you know, uh, are chomping at the bit to get over here. They're going to arrive next week, so that should be um, that should be uh, busy, but uh, something like uh, awesome. So we're uh, uh, we're looking forward to that, Chris. Oh, that sounds that sounds good. And and, and I guess unlike uh, all of New Zealand, where we've got literally no idea what weather we'll get on Christmas Day. Hopefully, your day is uh, like every other day, and it's. Uh, a nice warm 32 degrees and um, and very very pleasant for your uh, get together. So here's the harder one. Um, if you had to pick one thing as we go into uh, 2022, what do you think the main challenges for investors could be over the next year? So so I think it's uh, accepting uh, this new market regime is real and is going to persist because you know Chris, as you said uh, previously earlier. You know, going back to World War Two, and maybe even before that, right? If you go back uh, to the 1800s, UK consoles yielded five percent for like 80 years, right? Just it's a straight line across the screen, uh, across the screen. So, kind of forever, we've had uh, this uh, some version of a safe asset, right? US Treasuries or UK stuff, whatever. Uh, you've had that as as the absolute rock within your portfolio, uh, and now it's much less uh, obvious that that rock is quite as uh, solid. So I think the big challenge for investors is going to be kind of accepting that grudgingly because it's kind of super bad news. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, having to do the uh, the thinking and the work around, OK, uh, if that's true, uh, we think it's true. If that's true, how do I kind of replicate all the good stuff that the safe asset has given for me? Uh, and as I say, I think for us, that's going to have to be, unfortunately, a little bit of a blend, uh, maybe a few more high quality uh uh, cash generating, income generating equities, uh, maybe some more illiquid assets in the form of private, which can mean real estate and the, the other things. Uh, and then, as I say, lastly, maybe even literally looking a bit further afield by geography, uh, because uh, some other geographies, uh, I mentioned China in passing 3%, some other geographies do have some yield. So I think that's going to be the challenge is how do we adjust uh, to this, uh, this uh, situation, which we think is going to persist uh, for years to come, of the uh, traditional way of constructing portfolios may be having to evolve uh, in the face of this uh, very, very low uh, yield environment that we think is going uh, is going to persist and, and I think is very likely to uh, to kind of dominate uh, portfolio construction and how we think about portfolios through 2022. Yeah, I think for me, this is quite a challenging situation because since the global financial crisis, my interest rate uh, shout out has been lower for longer 
and sometimes I've had to uh, tweak that to even lower for even longer. Um, but uh, 2021 has certainly been a turning point for local rates here. So I've got to change that a little bit, but um, maybe it's going to be rising, but but still very low and uh, and complicated or something like that. But anyway, that'll be my challenge for the year ahead to work out what the uh, actual line is for interest rates that I, that I carry through for my presentations and forecasts. So um, thanks for... Um, to everyone for listening. This is our last podcast of the the year and it's been neat that you've been able to join me for it, Ben. I hope you have a really nice break and I'll look forward to talking with you again in uh, 2022. And to you, Chris. Thanks to everyone and uh, Merry Christmas to all the listeners. I uh, hope everyone has a, a restful and great, uh, great break uh, and I uh, hope everyone can indeed thrive in the new uh, market regime through 22 and indeed beyond. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss on a future show, please get in touch at podcasts at asb.co.nz. BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited is a wholly owned subsidiary of BlackRock Incorporated. BlackRock Incorporated is based in the US and is a leading global provider of investment management services with over US $9.5 trillion in assets under management as at 30th of September 2021.